Well, the Apostle Paul has really hammered us with the law quite a bit up to this point. All right, uh, not just throughout Titus, but really throughout all of the pastoral epistles is this theme of godliness. And especially last week, we had a text that was just very law, law-centered, right? Do this, older men, do this, older women, do this, slaves, do this. Don't do this, don't do this, don't be like this, be like this. Right, there's just a lot of law. We don't tend to think of it that way because categorically speaking, the, the pastoral epistles are not law books. As a matter of fact, no book in the New Testament is what we would call part of the law, specifically. You know, when we look at Leviticus, it's the genre of that book is a law book. Deuteronomy is a law book. None of the New Testament is technically a law book. But you can't deny the fact that the New Testament is filled with divine prescription. It's filled with divine commands. There is law in the New Testament. And as you read through the pastoral epistles, because one of its primary themes is this issue of godliness, that pastors would be godly, that their churches would be godly, we get a lot of law. And so it doesn't surprise me that the Apostle Paul would eventually work into his discussion here a very explicit testimony as to how the gospel relates to our law-keeping. In other words, you are all almost, in in evangelical circles, we, we hear two things fairly consistently. On the one hand, we always hear, you're not saved by works, you're not saved by works, you're not saved by works. You can't make yourself more lovely in the eyes of God by your works. You can't make God love you more by your works. Your works cannot ultimately justify you. They can't please you. No works, no works, no works. But then, fairly regularly, on the other hand, you also hear a lot of sermons like, do works, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. So it's like, what is it? <laughs> and, and I think what we're going to find in this text that we're going to read today is, although it can be found throughout the scriptures, is the important role that the gospel plays in our godliness. I think we're going to be reminded of the important relationship that the gospel has to our good works. And specifically, I I think what we're going to see in our text this morning is Paul is going to demonstrate, he's going to remind us of the means to godliness and the motivation for godliness. We're going to see the means to godliness and the motivation for godliness. And before we read the text and break that down, I want us to, I want to just flesh out a little bit more what I mean by those two sermon points. First and foremost, we need a means to godliness. Right? We, we read not long ago from a, a wonderful call and response, a reader response, from Matthew Henry. And today's was a little heavy, was it not? I mean, the entire thing, we were confessing and professing together our wretchedness, our sinful state, our fallen condition, and we said things like, we are vile, we are wretched, we don't deserve God's friendship, we don't deserve His love. We talked about our sinfulness, and then here we are now talking about being holy. But the fact of the matter is, as we just confessed and as the Scriptures clearly teach, Fallen man can't be holy. 
You don't have to turn there, but you can just mark down if you want Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 9, which very clearly declare that natural man has an inability to do anything good. It says that the text says that the natural man cannot please God. It is impossible for them to please God. They cannot submit to God's law. They can do nothing good. So we need something to enable us to godliness. We need something to change from our first condition that we were born with to now, where now Paul feels comfortable expecting holiness from us. We have to be enabled. Something has to happen that brings us into a new place where we can now be holy. So that's what I mean by Paul's going to remind us of the means to holiness. How do we get there at all? But then we're also going to see the motivation because you don't have to be a Christian very long to see that once you've gotten there, once, once God has done something so that you can live a righteous life, that doesn't make living a righteous life easy. Holiness is not like a light switch. Right? We don't just wake up and someone goes, you know you're supposed to be holy today. And we go, oh, really? Oh, okay. Oh, well, I'll be done. Okay, fine. I'll, I'll just be perfect today. <laughs> It doesn't work that way. Holiness is difficult. So not only do we need to be enabled to holiness, we need to be enabled to be holy. We need motivation for holiness. We need something that makes it worth it. Something to encourage us. Something to give us hope. Something that reminds us that our fight against sin is a fight worth fighting. And I think the text is going to provide that as well. The text is going to show us our means to godliness And it's going to show us our motivation for godliness. So let's look at the text. If you would, if you have not already turned to Titus chapter 2, and our text this morning will be verses 11 through 15. If you would please turn there, and we will read them together. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. If you would follow along, for these are the very words of God. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Well, Paul begins this text, as I said, with the means to godliness. What is our means to godliness? And I've said the answer to this is salvation itself. Salvation is our means to godliness. You must be saved before you can be godly. You must be saved in order to be holy. Where do I get that from? Well, I get that from verses 11 through 12. Right? He begins by saying, for the grace of God has appeared. And so really the technical answer to this question is not necessarily salvation. It's grace. Right? Grace is sort of the key to this entire passage. It's God's grace that has saved us. It's God's grace that trains us to godliness. So grace is a correct answer. And and, and by the way, just as a side note, uh, this this amazes me so much that if you were to do any study in church history, 
If, if, if it was a study worth its salt at all, you would spend at least some time learning about a very important moment in church history, which is the great theological battle between Augustine and Pelagius. Uh, Augustine and Pelagius, we, we don't have time to break down the entire history of those two men and, and what their controversy was. But long story short, Pelagius sort of started a movement as he was disagreeing with Augustine that became known as Pelagianism. And there were a group of people that we now call Pelagians. And Pelagius actually had the audacity to claim that grace was not a necessary requirement for us to do good works. He denied what we call original sin, that people are born into sin, they're born with a, with a fallen, spiritually dead nature. He denied that. And he argued that we can actually do good things and we can, uh, we can perform morally good works and we don't need an ounce of God's grace to do it. Now, that might seem crazy, but you understand it's because he was influenced philosophically rather than biblically. Because philosophically, what he was trying to do was he was actually trying to protect God. Because you see, in Pelagius' mind, if we say something like we are dependent upon the grace of God in order to be saved, and we're dependent upon the grace of God in order to do good works, then when we're not saved, and when we don't do good works, who's to blame? At least in his thinking, God, right? God now becomes my scapegoat because I can not do good works and I cannot be saved and say, well, I guess God didn't give me the grace. So he was philosophically trying to protect God. And in so doing, he ended up, which philosophical endeavors tend to do this, he ended up contradicting, contradicting the, the very clear testimony of scripture of our absolute dependency and need for the grace of God. This is just one verse of many that makes it very clear that Pelagianism is false. Everything begins with grace. Grace is initiated in order for us to be saved. Grace must be initiated in order for us to do any good work. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. We are dependent upon God's grace. But the reason I chose not to make that the answer is because that's kind of the broad answer. That's the big picture. But Paul in this text, he narrows it for us. He, he, he makes it more specifically because we can talk about grace in very broad, abstract concepts, but Paul narrows specifically what the grace of God has done in this text. So I, I want us to go with the more narrow answer. So rather than saying the means to godliness is great, which is true, I think we see it's salvation or what I'm calling saving grace. It, God has to save you from your sins. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodly lives. So it's not just grace that trains us, it's specifically saving grace that trains us to renounce ungodliness. So that's why I'm saying that our means to godliness is salvation. Our means to godliness is salvation. You have to be saved in order to be enabled to do godly things, to be a godly person. And this is so important because what this reminds us of is that the Christian gospel is literally the exact opposite of the gospel of men. All of the religions of men reverse this order. They all do. 
Every religion of men reverses this order. You see, to most religions around the world, we, we, we follow these steps backward. The religions of men say that you have to be godly in order to be saved. You have to live a godly life in order to maintain and earn your salvation. So logically, godliness comes first and then salvation comes second. But that's not the order of operations for the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul flips that around. The Apostle Paul says, no, you need salvation before you can even be godly. So we do not use our godliness as a means to access salvation. Rather, we use our salvation as a means to access our godliness. Paul says you must be saved. And then it's the grace of God through your salvation that trains you to renounce ungodliness and to live upright lives. Repenting of sin, living an upright life, that doesn't happen apart from the saving grace of God. Salvation is logically first. Godliness comes second. So we see yet again that salvation, God's saving grace, is the necessary means to godliness. For once someone has received the saving grace of God, they are now as being, as, as verse 12 says, they are, God is training them, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. How does saving grace train us? It's kind of a broad word. How does it train us? Well, first we talked about it enables us, but remember, God has also, through his, the salvation of his people, provided us with all that we need for godliness, he's given us his law, his prescriptive will for our lives. He's given us revelation. He's given us church. He's given us his Holy Spirit. All of these things that accompany salvation are the means by which God trains us to be holy. Our union with Christ, the indwelling of the Spirit, the accountability of our local churches, the revelation of God's law and His Word, all of these things, the discipline of the Lord, all of these things that accompany salvation are the means by which God trains us to be godly. But before we move on to our next point, a couple other things need to be said because I really appreciate, I find it very helpful the way Paul defines godliness, so to speak, the way he elaborates on it in this text. And I say that because if you look at verse 12, the Apostle Paul describes practical godliness as being a coin with two sides. Or better yet, maybe, maybe it's a battery with a negative and a positive charge. Right, because he describes godliness as a two-step action. There's a renouncing, there's a turning, a repenting, and then there's a living. There's a, there's a negative and an active. We turn from something and then we pursue something else. It's a two-step process. Right, he says in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and renounce worldly passions. So that's step one, renunciation, renounce these things. And then step two is to then live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. We renounce the one and we pursue the other. Now this might sound like I'm just saying something really obvious, but I, I don't think I am. I think that this is a very vital revelation for us here because he, I think that if we were just generally, if we were to poll your average American, they would not define being a good person like this. The way most people understand being a good person is 
simply not doing the really, really, really bad stuff. That's part of it, right? You can't rob a bank and you can't murder someone. But really, we only tend to define, with with those big exceptions, we tend to really only define being a good person, not so much by what someone renounces, but simply just by what they do. We tend to think of being a good person as as only the positive, right? I, I see this, let me just be very clear, I see this a lot, especially with celebrities and athletes. Celebrities and professional athletes. It's like a professional athlete can live in all kinds of sin. He can party on the weekends. He can be a terrible role model on and off the field, but he starts a foundation to help inner city youth, right? Or he starts a homeless shelter or he volunteers. And so the way the world is, is you can really live with quite a bit of sin, but if you throw all of these good works into the bucket, then you'll win a Walter Payton Man of the Year award. Right, you're considered a good person because of all the good things you do. But we very rarely hold them accountable to not just do those good things, but to renounce their former life. You see, you can't just throw good works into your bucket of sin. You have to dump the bucket of sin out and then fill it with good works. We have to renounce our former life and pursue our new one. We can't just start throwing new good things into our former life. We have to die to our former life. We have to surrender those things. We have to forfeit our old passions, our old desires, our old works, and and then once we've done that, then we can pursue the good ones. We see the same kind of relationship as it uh, as it, in regards to saving faith, right? If you read through the New Testament, sometimes Jesus or the apostles will talk about how we need faith to be saved. Other times they'll talk about how we need repentance to be saved, and sometimes they'll even bring them together in the call to repent and believe. And these things are not quite the same thing, but they are, they do are a package deal. They go together. And it's the same kind of relationship. Saving faith is not merely intellectual assent to the truth. You can't just, in other words, you can't just throw Jesus into your life. You can't just tack Jesus onto your life. You have to repent first. You have to repent of your old life. You have to repent of your old thinking. You have to repent of your false gods, repent of your false ways, and then turn to Jesus. You can't hug two trees at once, in other words. If you're going to cling to Jesus, you have to let go of whatever you were clinging to. You can't cling to both. You have to repent and believe, not just believe. In the same way, that's what godliness, you have to turn from sin and do good works. You can't just start doing good works, but maintaining your sinful life. What the gospel does, what what God's saving grace does is it trains us to both renounce our former lives and live according to our new ones. But nevertheless, this is a difficult time to do that, right? That's easier said than done. Paul describes it this way, uh, again in verse 12, that God's saving grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Uh, Let's also just briefly address, it's important before we move on, let's briefly just address the elephant in the room, shall we? Who specifically has the saving grace of God touched in order to enable us to live godly lives? Who's the us in that passage? 
Well, if all we had in our Bibles, if the only verse in the whole Bible was Titus chapter 2, verse 11, we might be prone to think, to believe a doctrine known as universalism. Universalism is the doctrine that every single person will go to heaven. No matter who they are, no matter what they believed on earth, they will all eventually be in heaven. Every single person. Right? I mean, isn't that what verse 11 says? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Right? The text doesn't say God tried to save all people. No, the text says God has brought salvation to all people. So isn't everyone saved? No. We have to understand the term all people, and this is common language, common usage in the New Testament of this concept of all. But contextually here, it's very clear that all people is addressing categories. It's categories of men, not every individual person. And why do I say that? Well, because remember, what did we look at last week? Paul addressed the church in categories. He said, here's my expectations for older men who have been saved. Here's my expectation for younger women who have been saved. Here's my expectation for older women who have been saved. Here's my expectation for younger men who have been saved. Here's my expectation for slaves who have been saved. Here's my expectations for masters who have been saved. You see, Paul addressed the church in categories. And what Paul was essentially saying is that, I am holding you accountable to live a righteous life no matter where you are, whether you're a man or a woman. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're slave or free, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're young or old, I can hold all of the Christian community to godliness because God does not show favoritism in terms of categorically who he saves. God did not just come to save the wealthy. He did not just come to save the poor. He did not just come to save the Jew. He has not just come to save the Gentile. He has come not just to save the old and mature and ignored the young and immature. No, God has brought salvation to everyone. That is the context he's using it. We can hold our Christian children accountable to righteousness because if they've been saved, because God doesn't refuse to save children. All people, no matter their skin color, ethnicity, age, gender, vocation, God is capable of saving them. He doesn't have a category of people that he has excluded from his plan. Paul holds slaves accountable to holiness. Why? Because God saves slaves. He saves masters. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives. And this brings us back to before I got off track, in the present age. Now, I don't know that this is exactly why Paul included this concept of the present age, but I really think it is. I think Paul is reminding us that this particular time is our time of testing. In other words, the present age, the day and age we live in, this is a difficult time to be righteous. As I said in the introduction, righteousness is not a matter of just flipping a switch. It's hard to be holy. It's hard to be godly. We live in a day and age that holiness is difficult. There's sin all around us. There's a broken creation all around us. There's sinful creatures all around us. And, and, and with that, before we just put all the blame onto everybody else, oh, and let's not to mention the spiritual forces that I think, if I'm being honest, are oftentimes untalked about. We have a spiritual enemy raging war against God's people. We have 
sinful people and sinful creatures and a broken creation all around us, and, and all of that is, is, is simply added on to the fact that because we have not received our glorified bodies yet, because our bodies have not been fully redeemed yet, we still, even though we're saved and justified, we still have lingering sin and desires and passions that we have not successfully mortified yet. So we still have sin within us and we are living in a world with sin around us. We, have, we, are, we are filled to the brim with temptations, evil desires, and brokenness. This present age is not an easy age to be holy in. Godly does not come easy in the present age. So how do we do it? Can God throw us a bone here? <laughs> Is there anything that gives us the motivation that we need? I know God has enabled us. He's given us the means to be godly, but where's our motivation to continue that? To fight the fight against sin every day? Well, Paul tells us that we do have motivation for holiness. We have hope. Right? He says that beginning in verse 13 that we are tested in this present age. We are trying to live godly lives in this present age. Why? Verse 13, and while we do that, we are constantly waiting for our blessed hope, our blessed hope. So we have a hope that's helping us endure godliness in this present age. We have a hope. We have something to fix our eyes on. Something to set our gaze toward that draws us to it, that helps us endure this present age. And what is that hope? What is our blessed hope? Continuing through verse 13, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what is our motivation for holiness? Well, the answer to that is the second coming. That's what he's describing. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul says that the blessed hope that we have that, that helps us endure godliness in this present age, the blessed hope that we have is when Jesus Christ comes again, our God and our Savior appears again. That's the second coming. The second coming is our blessed hope. Now, why is the second coming helpful to my present-day godliness. How, how does that help? Well, because Paul is calling to mind when he reminds us of the glory of the appearing of Jesus, who is our God and our Savior. Paul is reminding us of all that accompanies that event. When Jesus comes again, what comes with it? <laughs> what comes with it? The entire created order will be made new. The wickedness of the earth and the wickedness of God's enemies will be condemned and destroyed forever and we will receive resurrected bodies incapable of sinning and we will live for all eternity in perfection with Christ as our light in uh, the more intimate presence of God that we've ever experienced. We just sang the song, All Glory Be to Christ. And in that last verse we sang during the song, that on this day, the great I am is making all things new. And then we sing, behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light. And we will ere his people be all glory be to Christ. 
We just reminded of the glory of our Christ, the, the, the glory of the appearing of our great God and Savior. And when he appears, what that means is that we will dwell with him and we will live in perfection for all eternity. So in other words, when we contrast, when we compare, if you will, the second coming of Christ to this present age, we are given great motivation because here are the things we're reminded of. First and foremost, we are reminded that when once Christ comes again, holiness will no longer be difficult. Right now it feels so tiring. You have to toil so much to fight against sin and to be holy. It's such a fight and it's an exhausting fight and it can be a discouraging fight. But there's a day and age coming when holiness will be as natural to your soul as breathing is to your lungs. Righteousness will not be difficult then. Holiness, godliness will not be difficult then. So in other words, the second coming of Christ reminds us that there's a day and age coming when our fight will be over. We will have rest. This is not an eternal fight. And, and by comparing the present age to Jesus' coming, it reminds us that there is an age to come. And what that reminds us of is that the present age, guys, is really short. I know it doesn't feel like that. But when you compare the 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years, however long God has blessed a person with life on earth. When you compare it, whether it's five years or a hundred years, whether you, when you compare it to eternity, it's that. It's a vapor in the wind. It's the blink of an eye. That needs to be motivation for us. In other words, here's what, we, here's what the Apostle Paul is implying here. I know that the struggle against sin, the fight for godliness is difficult, but it's really short. Can you just hang on? Your life here is a vapor in the wind and then you spend eternity with Christ. For that tiny little split second in light of eternity that you're here on earth in this present age during this time of testing, can you just hang on? Can you just fight for Christ? Can you just keep walking, keep marching? It's a short battle. It's a short march. It's a short race. You, you know, Paul is recognizing that, that, that sin always has a temporal pleasure attached to it. The reason we sin is because in the moment, sin just feels better. It's easier. It's more satisfying in the moment. And Paul is reminding us, when, when, when the glory of our great God and Savior appears, we have an eternity of pleasure and ease and rest waiting for us. So why is it that we can't just give up pleasure now, surrender pleasure now, and then embrace it for all eternity? You have an eternity of rest and pleasure and joy awaiting you, and that needs to motivate us to endure this short little time of trial and testing. When Christ comes, holiness will not be a fight. And when Christ comes, we will dwell eternally with him. This is a short, momentary, fleeting life we live, filled with temptations and difficulties, and we just push through, we persevere through this short little time. And then we have all eternity to rest. That ought to be hope for us. That ought to motivate us to godliness, to be reminded this fight, this struggle is not eternal. And it's very fast. 
It's not a long time. At least not in compared to eternity. You see, Paul has reminded us not only of how we become godly, but of why we should be godly. And he really caps this argument off extremely well in verse 14. Because after reminding us of the appearing of Christ and the second coming and all that comes with it, he caps his argument off by reminding us that holiness, this is exactly what Christ wanted from us. The Christ that we're setting our hope on, the Christ that will come again, his whole redemptive plan, one of the most important aspects of him coming in the first place, was to make us godly. Right? That is what the text says. Beginning, let's go back to verse 13. Waiting for the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, so Paul is now beginning to cap his argument off. And one of the things he reminds us of is first and foremost who Jesus is. Who Jesus is kind of serves as, you can almost amend our second point. Who Jesus is is an additional motivation for holiness. Right? Because who is Jesus? According to verse 13. If we work backward through it, the first thing we see is he's our savior. Paul told us how the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. Specifically, how did God save you? It's in the work and person of Jesus Christ. He's our Savior. He goes on to remind us of how Jesus saved us in verse 14. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people. For his own possession. How does Jesus our Savior? He gave himself up. That's sacrificial language. We see this in Philippians chapter 2 especially, where in Philippians chapter 2 it tells us that, that although he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he humbled himself. He gave himself up. One of the things that makes Jesus so worthy of our holiness and worthy of our love and adoration is that he was not like a stubborn child. God didn't grab him by the hand and force him down to earth. Right? He gave himself up. Philippians chapter 2, he humbled himself. He says in the Gospel of John, no one takes my own life for, from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. Jesus, out of his love for us, out of his desire for a people, for his own possession, he gave himself up. And again, that's sacrificial language, to give yourself up. He sacrificed himself. And we see this concept of sacrifice again that he gave himself for up he gave himself for us to redeem us. That 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 word redeem in the Greek it, it 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 was oftentimes used for transactions to purchase something, to buy something back. Jesus redeemed us. Jesus purchased us by giving himself up by sacrificing himself. He bought us. In theological circles, we call this penal substitution. That there was actually a price on your head. You actually owed something to God that you couldn't afford. And Jesus purchased it for you. He redeemed you. We need to understand that salvation is not free. It's free for us, but it itself is not free. Salvation came at the highest cost imaginable. 
But Jesus willingly paid that price. He laid himself down and he redeemed us. And now, because of his broken body and his shed blood, he has purified for himself a people for his own possession. He has purified a people. He has washed you clean. He has made you new. He has forgiven your sins. He has turned what's dirty and made it pure. He has purified those whom he died for, and he describes these people whom he gave himself up for, whom he redeemed, whom he purified, as being a people for his own possession. The, the word that Paul uses there is oftentimes referred, used to talk about a personal treasure. Uh, there's a song that we sing. I, it's one of my favorite songs that we sing. It's called, He Will Hold Me Fast. And one of the lines in, in the second verse says that those he saves are his delight. And I just love that line. I, I, I nearly choke up every time we sing it. Isn't, isn't that such a blessed thought? Right? That those he saves are his delight. He has purified a people for his own possession. He has created, we are his treasure. We are his he delights in us. He loves us. He has brought us and He has gathered us. He's our Savior, as Paul says in verse 13. He gave Himself up for us. He redeemed us. He purified us. And He has made us a people for His own possession. The text also says what? He's not just our Savior. Who else is He? Verse 13. The appearing of the glory of who? Our great God. Jesus is not just your Lord. He's not just your Savior. He's your God. This is the same confession that, the de that we called Thomas, doubting Thomas. This was Thomas's confession. When he finally saw the res resurrected Christ, what did Thomas cry out? My Lord and my God. Jesus is God. And Titus 2.13 is one of the clearest testimonies we have to that. Now, if you have an older translation like a King James or a New King James, it, it, it might seem to, to separate Jesus from God in this text. And as a matter of fact, historically, there was an, another church heresy in church history. There was another heresy, Christian heresy, uh, that even predated Pelagianism. And it was started by a man named Arian, and Arian became known as Arianism. And Arianism is modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses. And what the Arians fought for in this text was they tried to argue that there are two beings in this text. There's two different beings in this text. Paul is saying that, that at the end of time, we will see two beings appear. First, we will see our great God. And then over here, we will also see our Savior, Jesus. And you can read the early church fathers, specifically the Greek fathers, the Cappadocian fathers, were very clear in their interpretation of this text that it was that both the God and the Savior are being applied to Jesus. And just contextually, we know that's the case. It's contextually clear, which is why this debate, there's been very little debate on this passage throughout church history. For example, let me just give you one example of that. That word appearing, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That word appearing is used throughout the New Testament and it's always used toward Jesus. To try to interpret this as two different beings appearing, Jesus and then God the Father, is, is, is to make a radical exception to the usage of this word. 
We call that special pleading. When the Bible talks, uses the word appearing, it's, it's, it's always related to Jesus, whether his first incarnation or his second. But Jesus is the one who appears. Jesus is the one who appeared in Bethlehem. Jesus is the one who will appear on the last day. God the Father will not appear. He is spirit. We will not see the uh, glory of the appearing of God the Father. We will see the glory of the appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. But if you really want to dive into this, I'm going to spare you the academic details now, but you can look up something called the Granville Sharp Rule. We have a tool to us today that the early church did not have, and that was a Greek uh, scholar by the name of Granville Sharp discovered a new rule in Greek grammar. And again, I, I, will, I will let you research this on your own, or you can talk to me and I can give you the, the resources. You need to do the research on your own. But let me just make this very clear. According to the Greek grammar, there is no way around seeing Jesus as being the object of the, of the adjective, the great God, the noun, I mean. Jesus, according to the Greek grammar, is absolutely the great God. The Greek is clear. The context is clear. Jesus is God. On the second coming, we will be able to look at him who has appeared, and we will be able to say two things about the glorious moment of his appearing. We will be able to refer to that person as being our Savior, yes, but you will also be able to fall on your knees and call him God. Jesus is your Savior who gave himself up for you to redeem you, to purify you, to make us a people for his own possession. He's your Savior, and he is also your God. But Here's how Paul caps his argument off. Jesus' divine, redemptive ministry, one of the most important consequences of his ministry, one of Jesus' things that he wanted to do by giving himself up for us and purifying and creating a people who are what? Zealous for good works. In other words, you see how important good works is to Jesus and to the gospel as a whole. Let me put it this way. Jesus did not just die for you to get you into heaven. I think that we too often make that a a simple association. That's obviously part of why Jesus died for his people is to save them, of course. And because as we preach the gospel, our primary focus is just to get people out of hell. So we're constantly telling people, don't go to hell, don't go to hell, be safe from hell, be safe from hell, be safe from your sin, be safe from your sin. That we do sort of reduce the plan, the ministry, the work of Christ to simply getting people into heaven. I was one time with a friend who described the gospel as God's great evacuation plan. Folks, that's not the gospel. It is not merely an evacuation plan. The text does not say that Jesus, our great God and Savior, gave himself for us and redeemed us to purify, to create for himself a a possession, a people for his own possession who are going to heaven. No, Paul focuses in this text, this is really amazing. He focuses the entire goal, the entire telos, if you will, of Jesus' death as being, as creating holiness in the people he died for. If if all we had was this text, I'm not saying there's not other true answers to this question, but according to this text, why did Jesus die for you? Why did Jesus die for his church? 
to make them holy. And I'm not talking just imputed righteousness, I'm talking practical righteousness, that they would be a people who are what? Zealous for good works. That we would desire to do good things. That's why he died for you. You see, the gospel has just as many consequences for today as it does for your eternity. Jesus is not interested in just punching your ticket to heaven. He's actually interested in transforming how you live, how you think, and what you desire. He's creating for himself a possession, a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so I conclude with two things. First, I just want to ask us, are we a people zealous for good works? Far too often I am confused by what I read in the Psalms where I I see David saying things like, I meditate on your law day and night. We tend to always associate the law with bad things, right? The law is not desirable. The law is not good. Isn't the law of God a killjoy? The law is God telling me all the things I can't do. I'm not supposed to delight in that. I'm not supposed to love that. I'm not supposed to be zealous for that. I mean, he's worth it, so I'll obey it. But the text in Titus 2 does not say that Jesus is creating for himself a people for his own possession who reluctantly obey him. He died for us to make us zealous for good works. May it be the case that all of us can rightfully say, I am thankful for the prescriptive will of God in my life. I am so thankful that he has shown me true righteousness, that he has shown me how a person needs to live. And I want to pursue it. I delight in the law. We want to be zealous for good works. I want us to become a people that, 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 that pursues holiness and that loves obeying God with the same passion that we pursue our vocational goals and our family goals and our financial goals. Do we love holiness as much as we love success and stature and family? Jesus died to make us a people zealous for good works. May By the grace of God, through the Holy Spirit, may we become a people that isn't just obedient, but that we love obedience. That we delight in the law of God. Because after all, that is one of the things the gospel is for. It's to enable you to be holy, and it's to motivate you to be holy. And just lastly, I just want to say this. Verse 15 is an important reminder for what holiness looks like. Paul tells Titus to declare and teach all of these things, all of these laws, all of these prescriptions, declare and teach them all. He says, exhort and rebuke, exhort them to good works, and when they're not doing those good works, rebuke them for it, and do so with all authority, let no one disregard you. This is why I think Titus was also a young man, because Paul used this similar language to this with Timothy. He told Timothy that even though he was young, let no one despise your youth. That's why I'm prone to think Titus was probably younger in age too. That there are people who will be tempted, and I think it's probably because of his age, they would be tempted to disregard his authority and to not take seriously his exhortations and rebukes. And and Paul's saying, don't let that happen. But here's, here's, I think, an important application of verse 15 for us as it relates to this idea of being a people zealous for good works being a people who have been enabled to holiness, who have motivation for holiness, and so now we are called to pursue holiness. And one of the things that it looks like to be holy is that we accept rebuke well. 
that we accept criticism. If you truly loved good works, you will not despise a person who's trying to help you perform them. If you are zealous for holiness, you will not look down on, despise, or get angry with a person who's trying to help you be holy. This is not to say every accusation a person ever makes against you is always true, but generally speaking, whether it's your pastor or a brother and sister in the Lord, we are not to despise people in their exhortations and rebukes. We are, we are to embrace godly accountability. If we were truly zealous for good works, this would be a beautiful thing, not a bad thing. Part of being a holy people, part of being a holy church is that we accept rebuke well. We're open to being criticized. We're open to repentance, to having our eyes opened to the way we've been living and to make those practical changes. And we don't despise those who are trying to help us. Church, God has given you the means to holiness by bringing saving grace into your life. God has given you the motivation for holiness by promising you an eternal state with resurrected bodies living with Christ Jesus forever. We have all we need to be trained into godliness. Jesus died to make us a people zealous for good works. So may we, by the grace of God, become that. Delight in the law of God, pursue holiness together, and always remember the foundational role the gospel plays in all of that.